Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Anne. Hi, doing? I have my voice back. We haven't talked about this yet. Oh my gosh. And it's so funny. It didn't even register with me. (laughs) Just like, I have my full throated laugh finally. Hooray. Hooray. And I can sing and it's wonderful. Well, that's the winner right there, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. Hey, do you know what else is wonderful? What is wonderful, Anne? You tell me. Our merch. (laughs) Queen of sideways. (laughs) I'm just going to give myself a pat on the back every time. You, dear listeners, Kind listeners, wonderful listeners, can support us by purchasing merch at tinyworld.com slash CWHmerch. We've got cute t-shirts. There's all kinds of nice stuff there. That's true. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcast, and you can support us on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. And if you support us on Patreon with as little as a dollar a month or just a dollar once, and you're in the United States, Sarah's going to send you a gift. If you're in the UK, I'm going to send you a gift. Who doesn't want presents? Who doesn't want presents? And if you are an American who has a British friend, you can donate at the same time and see which one of us mails something first. I bet it's going to be me. I bet you'll mail it first, but it'll arrive first Oh, in the UK. Well, <laughs> that's an episode for another time. The mail <laughs> systems. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about John. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about John. Yeah. So I found John through Alan T. Gordon, who is a pain reprocessing psychologist, who I found through my physio. What's a physio? And a physio is, oh my God, I just forgot the full word. Is it physiotherapist? Physio, thank you. Okay. All right. (laughs) Wait, do we have those in the US though? Yeah. We do? That's a thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Is it different? than a PT, like physical therapist? I don't know. I think it's probably the same thing. Okay. Well, I bet some listener could educate us. Somebody could tell us. But so my physio, I was working with on some knee pain issues, which you're going to hear me talk about in this episode. So I won't elaborate now. And he turned me on to Alan T. Gordon. And I reached out to Alan Gordon. And he said, you should contact John because he is incredible to talk to and he's going to be a great guest for you. And you said, I, I want in be on there. this. Yeah. So it was just incredible to hear John. And you had a really powerful response to his work. Yes. So you're getting two for the price of one in this episode, which is always free. So yeah. And I even have an update. So John had offered me a session, but I was still in the midst of my voice being fucked up and that being like the number one thing that was ruining my life. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, you know, could we work on the voice thing? And he's like, well, you actually have like a physical issue with your voice. So this is not, it's not appropriate for the pain reprocessing. So I need to reach out to him again, because of course, since my voice came back and the cough went away, all my back pain has come back. It's just so wild. Sweet. So I was working out yesterday and experiencing a ton of pain. And it's so like, this is the thing, the reason that I know that it's not necessarily a physical issue. I was able to work out without pain three days ago, but yesterday, so much pain. And normally I would be like, sad about it or like even there was one time where I just like crumpled onto the floor and just started crying because mm. I was like so mad at my body mm. but what I did yesterday was literally like I was like all right body what do you need like these exercises are not hurting you I know that you can do this like what is what's going on what do you need right now and I was experimenting with a couple different stretches to see what would actually make it feel better and I found a stretch that made it feel better yeah. In the moment. Yeah. And I, I mean, today, I unfortunately, I may have overdone it. I don't know because I'm experiencing pain today. But just the allowing myself to shift the way that I talk to myself, game changer. And it is not 
all because of John and that conversation, but that plus a series of other sort of hints mm-hmm. that like, all right, Sarah, you got to start being nicer to your body or else. So mm-hmm. those those threats worked. And so I thanks, John. Those threats. <laughs> John was very threatening. You'll good. hear. He's extremely yeah, threatening. So just, I'm obviously kidding. You know, I think this is such a magical So I've had a very difficult history with my body with chronic pain, with digestive issues, you know, like doctors looking at me and going, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not feeling, you know, being gaslit by doctors. And if you're Mm. a person of color or a queer person or Mm. a woman, you know what I mean. And Mm -hmm. probably some men have felt this as Mm -hmm. well. So me over time shifting my relationship with my body has been the number one game changer in all of that. Yeah. Some of that is through what John talks to us about today. Some of it's through my own practice and my own relationship. But if there's one takeaway that I I hope that our listeners get, it's shifting that narrative and offering yourself kindness Yeah, is such a game changer. And your right. body is not right. out to get you. You are not at war with your mm-hmm. body. It may feel like that when you're experiencing symptoms and someone's telling you, there's nothing wrong with you or this issue can't be solved, but your body is never at war with you. And I promise you that. And it's so important to be able to believe that. And I know Mm -hmm. it's a privilege for me to be able to believe it, but it has come through years of work. I I didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was at war with my body and it has taken years of therapy and different type, you know, acupuncture and physio and all this to get there. And so yeah, I, I really hope that wherever you are on your journey with that, you can be kind and compassionate with yourself. And it sounds like that's what you were able to do. Yeah. And I love that. I'm I'm at the baby stages, but yeah. I love it. Right? Yeah. And thanks for taking us along on that journey. You're welcome. I mean, yeah. So many times I say things and people are like, oh my God, me too. Or I'm so glad you said that out loud because I've been mm-hmm. thinking that and thought it was weird. Mm-hmm. So just count on me to ask the stupid questions, say the vulnerable stuff out loud. I'm there for you. Yeah. One thing about John before you read his bio is listeners will hear him say he's an LCSW. And then later he told me, because we're assuming by the time this comes out, the great state of California will have issued his LCSW. It is in the process right now. So just want to note that he says LCSW. He has completed all the requirements. And thanks, California, for taking your time. I won't even like Illinois is literally nine months behind, so I can't even. Okay, so just just wait to when you come here. Don't, you I was should you say, should apply now, honestly, for when you come in twenty twenty five. Put this yeah. on the list of things I'm not looking forward to, and moving yeah. back to the United States, which I'm doing in a couple of years. Yeah, fun fact, everybody. So, without further ado, John Gesenica, MSW, is a therapist and the director of development at the Pain Psychology Center in Los Angeles, where he works with the founder of pain reprocessing therapy, Alan T. Gordon, to help people with chronic pain and anxiety. John is also currently a research clinician studying the efficacy of PRT in racially and ethnically diverse adults with the University of Colorado and Schultz School of Medicine. Enjoy this super fun episode with all three of us. All of us. All of us. Are you a therapist stepping into leadership for the first time? Or maybe you've been in a leadership position for a while, but are bumping up against new struggles. It's a transformative journey and one that can be deeply rewarding, but also filled with unique challenges. Many therapists find themselves in leadership positions because of their exceptional therapeutic skills, yet leading, supervising, or managing others requires a whole new set of competencies not covered in graduate school. Our Authentic Leadership Group is here to help you become the authentic and wholehearted leader you aspire to be. And we believe this journey is best undertaken with the guidance of experienced mentors alongside fellow learners. Authentic Leaders will run February 2024 through September, meeting once monthly on Fridays for 90 minutes. Join me in this journey of self-discovery and leadership mastery, where you'll enhance your leadership skills and forge meaningful connections with fellow therapists who are committed to their own growth and the betterment of the therapy field. To join me and start registration, go to www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic dash leaders dash group. That's headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic dash leaders dash group. John, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. 
So happy to be here. Really excited that I got invited. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And when I say we're excited to have you, I mean we. (laughs) Sarah is also here. (laughs) I can't laugh or make the normal noises I want to do, but there, yeah, I'm here too. Yeah. Over to you, John. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Yeah, I'm the Director of Business Development for the Pain Psychology Center. I'm a therapist and licensed clinical social worker by trade. And I work with people with chronic pain. I, I use a modality called pain reprocessing therapy, and it helps people with chronic pain retrain their brain so that their brain stops alarming them so often with chronic pain. And uh, I'm currently involved in a study with the University of Colorado testing our method on uh, a population of diverse adults so that we can start showing the world that not only does this work for a small population, but it's, it's really transferable to most people. So, John, I found out about you and the work that you're doing because my physio in the UK, as his standard practice, like as his standard follow-up, sent me a video to your colleague, Alan Gordon, doing some pain reprocessing with a client. And my physio sort of takes the approach that Alan takes in that, you know, the pain is an alarm signal and it's fear. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he basically said, there's nothing physically wrong with your knee. So we have to work with the mental side of this, which blew my mind. And then I told Sarah about this. And Sarah, you were like, if you interview someone from that, you need to let me know. (laughs) Yeah, because I've been really honest with the listeners about what's been going on with me. And I've been going through a really deep healing process from childhood sexual abuse. And the pain has manifested. It's really fascinating because I was a gymnast as a kid. And I I didn't find out till I was like, I think 16 or 17 that I had a fracture in my L3. And I'd had back pain, you know, my whole childhood. And no one ever thought to look at it until they figured I had scoliosis. And that injury now is showing itself again as I'm sort of processing some of these childhood things. And I know that it's it's not, I mean, my pelvis is tipped a little bit right now, but it's mostly emotional for sure. Yeah. What we're finding is that your experience, and it doesn't have to be big T trauma like you Mm -hmm. went through. It can just be a lifetime of just small little T trauma, just years of work trauma or years of issues with your relationship that causes just that little underlying stress. Mm which primes your brain and has your brain to start reading nerve endings, the signals coming from your nerve endings through a lens of danger. And the brain can ring alarm bells in, in many different ways. And unfortunately for you, sir, it's, it's your back flaring up right, right now. But for other people, it's pelvic pain or headaches, IBS. A mystery knee injury that never happened. A mystery <laughs> knee injury. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, about half of our clients have had an injury in the past where that injury is healed, their body stabilized, they don't need pain mm. anymore. And then there's the other half, that's like you, Anne, where it's just like you wake up one morning and you're like, what's going on with my knee? And it seemingly comes out of nowhere and it could really develop in both ways. Yeah, I, I was hiking in Bosnia and I woke up, as one does, and I woke up the next morning <laughs> and I was like, did I do something to my knee? Like I was in searing, searing pain. And to my knowledge, I've never injured my knee before. and they had written it down to like a groin sprain, but I couldn't walk for mm-hmm. three months. Wow. And this is years ago. And when I saw my physio about it now, he said that one of the, and maybe you can explain this a little bit, one of the hallmarks of pain that is, how would you describe pain that's no longer, I don't want to say real because it, the pain is still real, but pain that's totally. no longer warning you properly? How would you, how would you describe that? The doctors on our medical board and the neuroscientists we deal with have started calling it primary pain. And you can hear about this type of pain in a bunch of different resources. It all has a different name because there hasn't been much consensus. Some people call it neuroplastic pain. Some people call it neuropathic pain. Some people call it TMS because that's the original doctor who came up with this, John Sarno, this this theory that the pain is being caused by the Mm. brain. I think until we come to some sort of consensus on the name, it's okay to just call it whatever. I usually call it neuropathic pain. But it's... The common denominator is that it's caused by firings of neurons in the brain. Your brain's actually initiating this alarm bell of pain, as opposed to getting signals from your body that that say you're in danger. Your your brain's making a decision, essentially, that says you're in danger without properly reading the signals coming from your nerve endings. Mm. So it's interpreting a danger that's not there, essentially. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think sometimes it it helps. I had a ton of fallacies about pain. I always thought it was the nerve endings in my body that gave me the sensation Mm -hmm. of pain. 
what's happening is that those nerve endings are sending information to my brain and my brain always makes the decision on whether to activate pain or not. So all pain is real because it's being initiated by our brain. But sometimes the nerve endings send neutral signals to our brain. Mm. And if our brain is primed from reliving trauma, like you're doing, Sarah, or and maybe you're having some sort of stressor in your life, it can start to get extra sensitive and ring the alarm bell of pain when it's not necessary. And so this is what happens when that knee pain starts out of nowhere. It's reading the same signals you've been giving it for 10, 20 Mm -hmm. years. All of a sudden, it's jumpy, it's primed, Mm -hmm. and now it's interpreting that information through a lens of danger. And it's initiating the same sensation you would get if you had a torn meniscus Mm -hmm. or an ACL injury. It has access to those sensations because it is the one that initiates those sensations, even when there is structural damage. So it's incredible. As you said that, I started thinking like, what was going on in my life at that time? The day that that knee injury happened, injury in quotation marks, the day that knee pain showed up, I had just sent an email to the theater that both Sarah and I used to work at. No. Uh, Keep going. Holy shit. (laughs) To say, hey, here's the sexual harassment that I experienced at this theater when I worked there. Assault. Yeah. Not harassment. That was assault. Yes. Yeah. The sexual assault I experienced at that theater. Here's, ooh, and I can feel my heart's even beating just talking about it. Mm. And... It was the same. It was the same day that I suddenly had this knee pain, and yeah. So what my physio said was one of the hallmarks of neuroplastic pain is you actually don't know where it came from. Like there was no incident that you know that I didn't injure my knee. I didn't fall. I didn't trip. I didn't sprain anything. But now it makes perfect sense. Holy shit! <laughs> wow. Yes, I mean I'm sure people are going to be hearing the story and say like, this is the exact same thing happened yeah. to me. Um, and the problem is, is that of course, you know, we're biologically predisposed to assume that pain from our body is physical mm. damage. It, it helps us yeah. survive. Mm. If, if we disregarded that information, our ancestors would have died out. They would have broken their leg hunting the woolly mammoth and been like, ah, it's probably stress. I'm okay. <laughs> and then compounded the fracture. So it's completely natural for us to assume that these sensations are because of structural damage. The problem is, is that, and let's say you went to get an MRI. After that three months, your knee's not getting better. There's a high probability that they're going to find something on your MRI. Mm -hmm. You know, they do these great asymptomatic studies where they take healthy people and they throw them in fMRI machines and they say like, what's going on Mm -hmm. with their bodies? Is it possible that they have damage and they just don't feel it? And you know, 73% of 30-year-olds who don't have pain will go into an fMRI machine and see a hip abnormality, a labral tear, a ligament tear. If you're in your 40s, 97% of people will have some sort of finding on their knee MRIs. And so the problem is you go Mm. in there, you say, oh, I have a ligament tear, I have a meniscus tear, I have high-grade tendonitis, but it's been there for 10 years. It's just that that day you started feeling it because your brain got primed. And it's very easy to say, okay, I need to go get surgery, Mm. or this is going to be with me for the rest of my life. I'm just going to have knee pain for the rest of my life. And luckily, what we're finding is that that's, that doesn't necessarily have to be true. And that, so what I've learned is that a lot of knee surgeries, knee and hip surgeries, I think, you wind up having the same surgery again. It's got like a really high like return rate because we haven't actually addressed the source of the pain, totally. which goes with exactly what you're saying. For sure. And and. You know, a lot of people get frustrated with the medical community for suggesting these type of surgeries. And that's mm. it's a completely fair frustration. But to be fair, psychology hasn't done a great job with chronic pain mm-hmm. in the past. If you look at the, you know, the RTCs on mindfulness-based stress reduction or even CBT for chronic pain, they do great things on anxiety about pain, depression about pain. But actually, the pain levels themselves, they're not super mm. effective at changing. And so... On one hand, it's yes, it's frustrating that doctors are suggesting surgeries that might not be necessary. On the other hand, the doctors are faced with this conundrum in the past of psychology hasn't done such a great Mm -hmm. job with this. So now I have the choice. Do I tell my client or patient, there's nothing I can do for you? And so what's exciting is in the last 10 years, we've discovered these new modalities are actually helping decrease the pain levels and in a lot of ways, getting rid of the pain altogether. Mm. And the medical community, we thought they would be dismissive of it and they've been really receptive because they they deal with patients all the time that they don't know how to help and when we come to them and say like we can actually help them and we actually have the science and the studies to prove that our stuff is helping a lot of doctors feel like a wave of relief because they don't have to suggest these surgeries anymore which has been pretty fun yeah 
Sarah, I'm watching you as John's talking, and I'm noticing that it looks like you're having a kind of reaction to what he's saying. And I'm curious what's going on for you as you're hearing this. Well, I'm I'm also just thinking about the conceptualization of the medical model, always looking for pathology and something Mm. being broken, right? And yeah, John, I see you reacting to that too, (laughs) right? And I mean, social workers, at least I know that we have a strengths-based model. We're always looking for what's what's working and what's right. So I'm also thinking about the medical industrial complex needing people to stay sick in order to continue to have patients. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think what you're doing, John, is probably pretty threatening to the medical community. And mm-hmm. I hear that some doctors are excited about it, but I bet there's going to be a lot of people that are like, no, this is actually going to put me out of business. And I, I can't blame them. Like if I spent 12 years in medical school and residency to become a spine surgeon and all of a sudden this information comes out that says my patients don't need spine surgery that often, I'd be upset too. I'd be really yeah. sad. And so I understand the resistance. It's I think as time goes on, it'll get easier and easier for the medical community to accept this. We just need more science. And, and luckily I'm involved with a couple of research studies right now that are helping show people like this is this is true. This isn't the snake oil that a lot of chronic pain practitioners can Mm. have pushed in the past. Well, and to be fair, it looks like fucking magic to watch. Honestly, (laughs) when you hear or watch somebody do pain reprocessing to receive pain reprocessing, it feels like fucking magic. And so I understand why people would be like, I don't know. So it's great that you're doing the research to to sort of firm up the, the evidence so that you know, people who aren't quite as woo-woo as maybe me and Sarah are <laughs> can actually see that this is this is an alternative option, you know? For sure. It's way better than opiates, for sure. Hell yeah. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the process of pain reprocessing itself. Yeah, and I think just to react to what you were just saying, I've never had a patient come to me who was completely bought in. If you're still feeling pain, you have this biological signal in your body that says you're structurally Mm. injured. And there's always going to be the piece of you that says like, nope, I'm injured. There's no way you can help me. And so the starting phases of pain reprocessing therapy is really doing the psychoeducation, showing the proof that the person can get better. And we're really just looking for them to go from 5% belief in this to maybe 20, 30%, just so that they trust you a little bit so that when you lead them through the exercises, they don't feel like you're leading them astray. And then we kind of ping pong, you know, when they when the client does the exercise and they feel their pain start moving around their body or going away or changing, all of a sudden their buy-in starts to increase. But they need that rational part of their brain to be on board mm-hmm. first. And the study I always show them is our first study we did with the University of Colorado Boulder, where two-thirds of people after f- four weeks were completely out of pain. That's amazing. And these were people who had suffered from chronic pain for over 10 years. Almost every one of them had at least four findings on the MRIs. We treated a woman with a 73-degree angle in her, her spine from scoliosis. <laughs> and you look at her spine, and it looks like a question mark. And rightfully so, she was you know, very skeptical yeah. at the start of this process. There's no way. My, my spine is twisted and bent. There's no way I can live with that pain. And so when people start to see stories like this and studies like this, especially when Harvard does a study a couple months after mm. we did and found the exact same statistics, you know, in our study, 98% of people got better and two-thirds were completely out of pain. Harvard did their study over a little bit longer of a period of time, but they found the same thing. It's over 60% of people were out of pain after the study. And so once the rational brain gets on board, we explain the neuroscience Mm -hmm. a little bit. We have a great medical board and we go over people's medical histories with with our medical board to make sure we're actually helping the right people that need help. Then we go into what PRT looks like on a, on a tangible level, which is the exercises. We have a tool called somatic tracking, which if you're familiar with exposure therapy, is really helping the person expose themselves to the sensation yeah. of pain and using a lot of soothing techniques to help start combining this concept of I'm safe, I'm at rest, I don't need to spring out of my chair, and I can just hang out with the pain for a little mm-hmm. bit. And what starts to happen is that their brain starts to fear the pain less and less. And when that happens, their nervous system starts to calm down, they get the parasympathetic activation, and their brain starts to reconsider, am I really in danger here? Do I really need to be shooting this pain alarm? And what'll happen is, at first, the patient will just start to feel the sense of relaxation and calm as their pain is activated. And then all the work goes on in the background. It's their unconscious brain realizing, I'm not in danger. I don't need to be warning this person to spring into action. And so that's a oversimplified version. Wait. 
So it's not even really about the pain changing. It's just the relationship to the pain. 100%. Is that so cool? <laughs> I mean, that's literally what life is about, period. Because yeah. that's that's what reduces our symptoms of anxiety, too, yeah. is just not feeding into it, right? Or even depression, right? Like having a different relationship with what you're experiencing. Y'all, this is the human experience. And if we don't fucking figure this out, mm -hmm. we're all going to continue <laughs> to go down into the hellhole that we are spiraling towards right now. But that's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's pretty exciting because it has so many overlaps with, I work with clients with phobias and OCD and really the treatment's so similar. Mm. It's what's your relationship to what's coming up in mm -hmm. your body. And if you can change that relationship when your back hurts, if you go into catastrophization and say like, I'm going to be in pain for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be able to hang out with my mm. kids. My spouse is going to leave me because I'm in a bad mood all the time. You're increasing the levels of fear in your brain and your brain saying, oh, mm. this pain alarm is actually quite appropriate. This person is in danger. And so that's really the relationship we're looking to change is their reaction to the pain. Well, now I feel personally attacked. So thank you. Because <laughs> literally, because you can hear my voice too. I've been sick and so I lost my voice and then I've been experiencing pain. And yeah, my self-talk has been like, well, this is the way it is. I'm never going to be able to sing again. I'm never going to be able to be active again like I was before. And all right, now that you're calling me out, this is my new practice is just speaking to myself with a little bit more kindness. Mm -hmm. Everyone's it, been telling me and I've been it, fighting it. It works. It, so uh, I know I keep using my like mystery knee injury as an example, but so I started after kind of learning about pain reprocessing and changing the relationship with the pain and with what's going on. I went for a run and here comes this knee pain. And, and I immediately knew because I had received the information, there's nothing wrong with my knee. So it was first, it was the, the actual science and knowledge that kicked in. There's nothing wrong. I'm okay. And then it was, I turned off my music and I just started negotiating with it. What's going on here? What am I afraid of? What, you know, I slowed down and I showed my body, look, when you stop running, you're not in pain. So there's nothing wrong with you. I start running again <sighs> and I, I just keep talking to it and I'm going, I get it. You're scared. We have to run back up a hill to get home. And some, and, and, you know, that taps into all these feelings and in my childhood. So I wound up holding onto my belly where my little kid self lives and having a chat with her. And while I'm having a chat oh, yeah. with her, guess what? My knee stops hurting. <laughs> like it just stops. And I ran home just fine. You know, kindness is just magic. And especially oh, yeah. when we know how to wield kindness, because that's, you know, when you ooh, talk ooh, about ooh, say that again, Yes, I shall. when we know how to wield kindness, when we know how to wield <sighs> kindness, it's just, it's so powerful. Hmm. The compassion in which you spoke to yourself is so beautiful and those mm. messages of safety. It's so not about the content. It's the feeling behind the content. Like you, I could tell you were caring for yourself mm. the way you would care for a small child. And that's the soothing effect that has on our brain. I think what's been cool about this modality, and I really think of it, it's like a gateway drug into <laughs> other therapies because I see... I see a lot of people who would have never seen, have never been to a therapist before. And this is the first time in their life that their body says like, okay, you can't go on living the way you do. Wow. And a lot of people come into it and they have this concept of like the self-compassion is a nice to have. Like this is a, you know, that'll be nice, but it's not necessary. As you were showing, Anne, like it is a necessity. And, and it's pretty cool to see people see the motivation that they need to now be kinder mm. to themselves to actually get their pain to react in the way they want. And it seems like you have you have some good practice being kind to yourself, which is, Man, I'm which is great. And I'm I'm curious how you developed this, this ability to be kind to yourself in order to help other people learn to be kinder to themselves. I had chronic pain for gosh, more than 15 mm. years on my shoulder. And it wasn't just shoulder and neck pain. I've had pelvic pain, I've had headaches, I've had foot pain, ankle pain, IBS. Mm. So I have a very active nervous system. Don't and we all? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe some more than others, right? I'm guessing yeah. some people yeah. are more susceptible to, to that manifestation yeah. than other people. Mm. For sure. And I didn't realize that, you know, I started interning for the Pain Psychology Center when I was in grad school. 
And I started using the techniques on myself and all of a sudden my symptoms started going away. And that's when I really started drinking the Kool-Aid because I got the personal experience. But I fit the type of people who, you know, we see a pretty specific population of people, you know, people pleasers, type A, high achievers, high anxiety, people who have had traumas in their past or people who have low T trauma where it's just consistent mm-hmm. stressors and it causes a nervous system. You know, I like to think of it as, our brains become this night watchman who's been told there's going to be a robbery mm-hmm. tonight. And so everything that bumps in our body, our brain shines a flashlight on. And that's really all this is. Mm-hmm. You can think of it as a, almost like a hearing aid. The information coming in is the same, yeah. but the hearing aid's just amplifying it. And so I, you know, self-compassion, I kind of would always roll my eyes at because it seemed like a nice thing, but it didn't seem necessary. Mm-hmm. And when I learned like, this is actually the piece I need to feel better physically my motivation skyrocketed. And it's really what I use with my clients who have never been to a therapist before, quite honestly, view what I do as, as woo-woo stuff. Mm-hmm. And if I can speak to them in a very tangible, fact-based way of like, hey, you actually need to do this to get out of pain, people's motivation change pretty quickly mm-hmm. when you go that route. And it's so funny, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, I've done that for my emotional pain because that's what that's mm. what I'm used to. I've been in emotional pain my whole life. There was a turning point where I finally stopped attacking myself and realized that I'm not going to get through if I don't start loving myself. But the physical body, there's mm. there's something different for some reason. And it, for me, at least it feels like there's this expectation instead of a relationship with. And I can't remember who I was talking to yesterday, but I Oh, it was my my personal trainer because she's also a survivor of of sexual abuse. I'm going to have her on at some point because her story is wild and she's so she so understands. I'm like crying in the middle of like you know yeah. doing deadlifts and 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 she's just like she's like yeah your body's the only one you have and I'm like yeah I guess we either get through this together or I just keep uh-huh. fighting and I keep experiencing this pain and so what you're saying God. Damn it, John. See, I know I needed to be here. This is, this is going to change my life, I think. And just just hearing this message, and I know that it's true because I've learned it from the emotional side. So God bless you and your work. <laughs> I damn him and bless him all at the same time. That's how I roll. I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <The> damn <him>. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing I want to be clear with too is like your pain is completely Mm. real. Like I never want somebody to take that I'm saying that their pain is not real. The experience you're having with your back is the exact same experience you'd have if you had an acute Mm -hmm. injury. The only argument I'm making is that you're not under threat from a physical standpoint. And that word threat is like the most important thing to to think of. It's not that it's not real. It's just that it's not a threat to you in this moment. Mm. I think that's, if there's one thing I can get across to people in this podcast, it's that message right there. Well, and it so aligns with, so NARM is the modality that I'm really utilizing for for trauma healing, both personally and as a therapist. And and that's, it's the same thing too. We talk about the idea of future memory that often what we're afraid of is what's already happened in our childhood. Mm -hmm. And so we are adults, we have agency, we are safe, you know, in general. And, And so then that can help reprocess the emotions that we're having. So it's the exact same thing. And how empowering is that message right. too? These patterns got set up because of what you've been through and you actually have an opportunity to rewrite these patterns. I right. can't think of a more empowering right. message than what you just said. Right. And I think there's, so for me, I wasn't trained specifically to include the body in therapy, but because of me and my own sort of relationship with my body and, you know, I teach yoga and I think it's just so important, Right it's something that I include a lot. And so the idea that things that can go unsaid, you know, or, or things that people don't have the words for because it's pre-verbal or the words have been taken away for one reason or another, it gets spoken through our bodies. And if we can address that, I love when my clients are like, man, I just, my shoulder's really hurting me today. Sorry, you didn't need to know that. And I'm like, nope, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> and I'm curious how you, you are a therapist as well. How do you combine the the pain reprocessing with your therapy work? Yeah. So I, I really look at it, you know, 
tell every one of my clients, we're going to work on the pain and your relationship to your pain because that's causing a tremendous amount of fear in Mm -hmm. your system. But a lot of times we're going to have to decrease the fear in other parts Mm -hmm. of your life. And I use fear as an umbrella term. A lot of people push back against fear and I I understand it. I'm not afraid of things. When I talk about fear, I include rumination. Mm -hmm. I talk about self-criticism. I talk about self-compassion. You know, there's so many things we do during the day. Rumination is probably the biggest one of them. It doesn't feel like anxiety or it doesn't feel like fear. But if we're constantly playing problems in our brain on a cycle, we're visualizing dead ends consistently because we can't come up with a solution. And it puts a tremendous amount of strain on our brain. It causes a tremendous amount of fear because we're just visualizing bad outcomes. And so it's, it's helpful in a motivational standpoint for my clients to learn if we decrease fear in all areas of your life, it's going to be so much easier for your brain to realize that you don't need to be alarmed with pain. And I see clients that, you know, I keep on coming back to this, but a lot of the clients I see are the people who just want to get rid of their pain and they don't want to deal with the other aspects of their life, which is totally understandable. That's how I got into this. But it's a pretty quick transition and it's pretty easy once they realize, once they start to feel their pain getting better because of some of these psychological things they're changing or behavioral things they're changing, it really opens up people's minds to start making this a sustainable practice because a lot of my clients will come in and their pain will go away they still have things that are causing a tremendous amount of fear to their brain and so we we don't want somebody to get out of pain you know in our study one of the things we're the most proud of is that the two-thirds of people that got got out of pain when they checked in with them a year later their pain maintained the similar levels and so one of the things we take pride in is preparing people for this sustainable journey where we're decreasing fear in our life consistently and we're keeping our brains below that threshold where they stop reading our signal through a lens of danger. And that's that's where the motivation mm. comes from to do the more psychological work. And I'm thinking of how our world is set up in a way that makes that really challenging. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So when you think about this work that you're doing, how do you think about the term healer as applied to that work? I've thought about this question a lot because <laughs> because I've I've listened to a few of the podcasts and uh, the people pleasing part of me really wants to say like I love it because <laughs> I, I know Sarah's going to give me a good reaction. <laughs> I think for me personally, there's a huge population of people out there who won't come close to what we do if I call myself yeah. a healer. They're so used to the medical model mm. and they're so used to seeing a doctor with a MD next to their name and in a white coat that. For me, it's important to call myself a clinician Mm. or even a therapist. Mm -hmm. And then I love the term healer. I think it's beautiful and I think it applies to me. But I also am conscious of making this, making my work in a language that people understand Mm -hmm. and can accept and can get them in the door. And so that's why I like it secretly. But I, I think there's a population of people who are really attracted to somebody called a healer. Yeah. But there's 50 million people in chronic pain in the United States. 40 million of them don't need to be because of the scientific work we've done that shows they don't need to be in chronic pain. And and 39 million of those 40 million don't even know this exists. And so I want to make it as accessible Mm -hmm. to them and put it in the language that people understand and want to want to pursue if that makes Mm. sense you are more of a people pleaser than me i like that (laughs) because i'm like fuck those people (laughs) (laughs) i have this same and i never would have filed it under people pleasing so it's interesting that you did i have the same sort of like i want to make sure that my language is accessible and the words that i'm using are accessible to other people so that they will access it, right? Yeah. Totally. Which is what you just said. I never would have filed <laughs> that under people pleasing. <laughs> so now I'm going to have to rethink my whole No, no, I'm going to take your reframe. <laughs> I think your reframe is the best way to go. It's subtle though, right? Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, the other thing that I'm finding interesting about this. So just to bring like the other component of NARM that has been really helpful for my healing. So they talk about like different survival strategies that because of whatever trauma it was that you experienced and, you know, your temperament or whatever, that there are certain survival strategies we employ more than others. So I fall very deeply under the category. Well, they they don't say it's categories. They try not to be like diagnostic, but I highly identify with the autonomy survival style, which is very much like getting in power struggles. But as an adult, you turn the power struggle against yourself, 
right? And mm. so a lot of my reaction, like, well, I'm not going to do that. That's that autonomy style to try to stay connected to like what I know is true for me. But unfortunately, it backfires when it comes to like actually caring for yourself. Because as soon as you tell me to do something, I'm going to be like, fuck you, I'm not going to do that. It's so it's <laughs> totally. so wild. No, I can relate to that. Definitely. Yeah. So on top of that question, how do you feel about the term wounded healer as applied to this work and yourself? I really like the wounded part of it because if there's a commonality in all the people I see, it's there's an unbelievable loneliness that comes from chronic pain. Ooh. And can you say that again? Yes. There's an there's an unbelievably profound loneliness that comes with chronic pain. Yeah. And the idea that they can talk to somebody who has a pretty good idea of what they've been through, mm. I think is the number one factor in me getting people better mm. is just that sense that they're not alone in the struggle. Mm. And so I, I embrace that term wounded. Mm. I let every one of my clients know I've been through this. I tell them exactly mm. the symptoms that I felt, even if it's not similar to the symptoms they felt, just so that they know. I mean, there's so much loneliness and chronic pain. It's your your spouse doesn't understand it. Your kids don't understand it. Your employers don't understand it. Our society doesn't understand it. And there's a lot of future forecasting of a life where you're going to be pretty alone. Mm. And so if I can decrease that even in the slightest bit, then I'm completely willing to embrace that. I think the loneliness of chronic pain is not something that I had really thought about until you just said it. Like it gave me goosebumps mm. when you just said that. I think it's related to ableism, mm. right? You know, I, I've been following enough people in the ableism like activist space now who are you know talking about how our view of covid has now changed and we're not wearing masks while we're having an uptick of illnesses mm -hmm. like you know case in point and so a lot of people with chronic illness have been opting to stay home and again that just goes back to this idea that the world that we've created especially in America and probably a lot in the UK too yes. is not necessarily for people who aren't completely able bodied in many ways Totally. I have so many clients whose experience, they'll say like, I was driving through town today and I saw people jogging and I just got so angry at them and so frustrated because like, I want to be out there so badly jogging and I'm so jealous of what they have. And it's, it's not just a loneliness, it's a frustration that comes up and that's totally rational. And it's beautiful to have that fire in you that says like, I want to get back to doing the things I love. But I agree with you, Sarah, it's societally we're built to make people feel, you know, we have this individualist work ethic that, that we start out with, that we kind of have to do it all ourselves. And yeah, it, it is fighting an uphill battle. You can fight it and it's, people can get better, but I don't want to minimize it's hard work. It's a struggle. And you're going against a lot of signals you're getting from your environment that says you're different. You're not going to get better. But when people learn to overcome that and they feel the empowerment of like, oh my gosh, I overcame that. Mm -hmm. It really opens up a lot of avenues of what else can I do? What other things can I change in my life? Mm, I was thinking about changing the relationship to your body where your body can feel like a prison to where it can feel like the activator of freedom, the thing that that lets you, you know, like your body's not supposed to feel like a prison. It's supposed to be the thing you like interact with the world with but there's really mm. something about chronic pain and also the way that we as a society make people's bodies a prison right if mm -hmm. we're not set up for people with different abilities we are creating a prison of someone else's body which is i mean that's you're taking someone's agency away talk about oppression yeah yeah and if you add to that, Anne, the idea that we use our bodies as these signifiers of like our gut feeling, mm -hmm. it's, it's what tells us what's right and what's mm -hmm. wrong, what we should be doing. When our body gets really sensitive to signals coming in, what people have to accept is the idea that their nervous system and their brain is actually lying to them. It's giving you a false signal of yeah. danger. And that's, right. it's a really hard thing to accept when you've trusted your gut for so many years. And you say like, my body tells me the accurate information and to accept my body's wrong. In fact, my body's wrong a lot. Is a tough pill to swallow, but it's liberating once you get through it. But not only is the body this vehicle to freedom, it's also this vehicle to pointing me in the right direction of what I yeah. should be doing or what feels right. 
And that gets scary. And there's discernment, right? I know, and I'm sure that's something that you talk a lot about in, in yoga, right? Discerning the difference between the pain of I am strengthening my body versus I'm hurting my body, right? Mm. The discernment of I feel triggered right now by this situation versus I'm in actual danger. Mm -hmm. And that takes nuance. And again, our society does not slow down enough that we can tune into that nuance. Oh, amen. I couldn't agree with that more. That when we talk about interoception, it's getting more intimately understanding what's going on in your body that picking up on those little nuances, picking up that fear is just a tightness in my chest and it's a shortness on my breath and it's a tingle in my skin. It takes time and it takes attention to do that. And I think that's why the mindfulness component is important to what we do is getting people to slow down. But I'm not a person who likes to slow down and it's been a challenge for me, but a good challenge. Do you know the Enneagram? Mm -mm. Oh, okay. If you knew your number, (laughs) I just just curious. (laughs) What was it? It was like... an intro episode or two, like something we've recorded recently, you brought that up with me and you were like, we're going to have to figure out what yours is. Oh shit. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to send you the test. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like the Myers-Briggs, but it's a different sort of personality sort of thing. And I just, I'm always listening and curious if I can type people. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, send it over, please. I will. I will. Yeah. I'm thinking about the idea of slowing down. Cause when I, when I use it with my yoga students and with myself in my own yoga practice, what becomes like, am I in pain or am I not in pain? It's a binary. And Mm. don't we love creating some shades of gray in a binary? It becomes, am I in pain or is this just uncomfortable? Yeah. Mm. And then you can even split open the, what kind of uncomfortable is this? Is this the kind of uncomfortable Mm. that is not okay and I need to remove myself from the situation? Or is this uncomfortable and can I breathe through it? I I love that so much. It's one of my favorite exposures I do with people is this acknowledgement that when you slow down, your brain is going to resist it and it's going to bucket like you're riding a Bronco. And just what you said, Anne, like, is this just discomfort and can I ride it out? And I take it a step further with my clients and this is getting into the realm of, you know, some of the OCD work I do, but Actually, can you ask your body to increase that sensation? Can you say, all right, I see how much you're hating slowing down right now and you're making my chest tighten up like crazy. Bring it on. Let it rip. Let me show you that I'm so not afraid of this sensation Mm. that's telling me I need to go back into this high alert state. Mm. And uh, I'm sure you see this in in yoga and when people kind of break through that discomfort and realize that it's not all that scary, it can be pretty fun. It also involves a lot of crying. Yeah, and it's, and it's almost always in hip opening postures. Yeah, <laughs> almost always in hip opening postures, and then you see it. Wow. You see it come, and it, I know it because I did it myself. But you see that that it's like it rises, it rises, and they stop fighting, and then here come the tears, and then the whole body just. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen that too, working with people with chronic pain. There's, I imagine, there's probably a similar moment. For sure. A lot of times it cracks and just people start sobbing and they have no idea Mm. why and it doesn't really matter why. And then all of a sudden you feel this deep relaxation afterwards and that's the reward that comes after it. It's just this feeling of like, oh my gosh, that underlying level of tension is no longer there. I just needed to face the monster so that I stopped protecting myself from it. Yeah. It is a reward, isn't it? It it totally is. Like there is a reward for crying people. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) definitely i'm a fan i'm a big fan i'm thinking about the amount of transformative moments that you must have witnessed and i'm wondering if there's anything that sort of sticks out to you as a moment that transformed you at the same time that you were witnessing someone else's transformation does that question make sense totally i i think the transformations are typically with the fear there are sessions I get where the pain goes completely away, but that's actually, it's actually not what I'm mm-hmm. looking for. And I, my mentor, Alan Gordon, who is probably the best mind in the, in the field on this stuff. One time he told me, he was like, when you have a client that comes to session and they don't have pain and they're super happy, when that happens to me, I feel good, but it's, it's a little scary to me because I don't know if it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. He said, when they come to session and they're in pain, but they don't really care they're actually pretty relaxed and they're loose. Like that's when I know this person's going to get better and they're going to get better for a long time. 
And so when you say like seeing these transformative moments, seeing people break through that fear barrier where they're like, oh my gosh, I don't have to be afraid anymore. That's the really exciting part Mm. for me. And that's when it feels sustainable. Obviously, it's lovely to see somebody say like, oh my gosh, my pain went away. Like, how can I be structurally damaged if I just did something with my mind? That's really exciting, but it's not as satisfying as seeing kind of like that deeper fear go away, if that makes sense. I'm guessing that a lot of the science that you've introduced us to today is going to be new for a lot of our listeners. So I'm wondering if there's something you want people to take away from this that can kind of be like a little bite-sized thing. What's one thing that people can take away from this that they could adapt into their daily lives that doesn't have to be a whole giant thing? That's a great question. Doctors are always asking us, like, how do I tell my client about this in 30 seconds? Because that's how much time I have to talk to them about this stuff. I would say the number one thing, it's completely okay if you're skeptical Mm -hmm. right now. In fact, I would be shocked if people weren't skeptical. Don't view your skepticism as an alarm bell that's saying, like, this is completely off the table Mm -hmm. for you. Do your research. The Way Out is a book by Alan Gordon. It's incredible. The podcast, Tell Me About Your Pain, is incredible. Anything by Howard Schubner, a medical doctor, is incredible. Look at the JAMA Psych study we did with the University of Colorado Boulder that shows that people who were in your shoes got out of pain. And just trust that you don't need to be bought into this fully for it to work for you. If you have 15% of you that says, gosh, maybe this is helpful for me, then do a little research and hold on to your skepticism. It's what's protected you from a lot of avenues that aren't going to help you, like some back surgeries. It's not a bad thing, your skepticism right now. But I just invite people to look a little bit deeper into this stuff and and check it out for themselves. And where can they check it out for themselves? Where can people find you and find your work? I work out of the Pain Psychology Center. It's our center of a collection of 20 or 30 therapists who do the work that I do. So the Pain Psychology Center, painpsychologycenter.com is, is a great resource. I also teach at our, our sister clinic, which is where we teach clinicians how to perform this therapy, Pain Reprocessing Therapy Center. Those are two great resources for either treatment or for looking how to get trained in this modality. Do you do trainings online for some of us who don't live in the United States at the moment? 100%. 100%. <laughs> no, I was just going to ask that. Good job, Anne. <laughs> we love yep. the training. We sure do. They're completely virtual. <laughs> And yet, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to hear this from a social worker or a therapist. They want to hear it from Mm. a doctor. And there's some wonderful doctors. Dr. Howard Schubner is the best in the business. He does a talk at the Google campus about all the science behind this. One of the leading neuroscientists in this field is Yoni Ashar. Anything written by him or Dr. Schubner is really strong in terms of thorough science. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've enjoyed this. I hope you've enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Amazing. Thank you so much. For sure. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at, at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.